welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist with interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And for those of you who have been listening to this podcast for years, you know that usually we tackle a lot of topics from clinical advances to controversies to debates to even sometimes some fun stuff, such as talking about the legacy of the Queen of England or the Docs Who Rock episode. Today's podcast is about the microbiome. A lot has been talked about on social media. I think there's a lot of controversy. What in the world is the microbiome and why is it important in oncology and in science? You know, when you look at the definition of microbiome, it's basically the collection of all microbes, such as bacteria, fungi, viruses, and their genes that naturally live on our bodies and inside us. Now, what type of studies are being done to understand the link between microbiome and cancer? How much of this is hype? How much of this is hope? How much of what we are reading are myths versus actual facts and science? Well, of course, I don't have the answers for you, but this is why you listen to Healthcare Unfiltered, because I collect and I bring in top-notch uh, opinion leaders, top-notch investigators, scientists, and folks who are able to provide the answers that you need in a very crowded world where sometimes it becomes very challenging to separate the signal from noise. So I've asked Dr. Monty Pal, who is a professor at the City of Hope, and he's a GU oncologist, to join me on today's podcast, as well as Dr. Nazli Disman, who is currently at Yale. She is has been mentored previously by Dr. Pal, and they both have done some unique work on uh, the microbiome, and I've asked them to join me. But we also have, for the first time on today's podcast, Dr. Jennifer Wargo. Dr. Wargo is a professor in the Department of Surgical Oncology, Division of Surgery at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. She is the R. Lee Clark Endowed Professor in the Department of Surgical Oncology and she's also professor in the Department of Genomic Medicine, Division of Cancer Medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson. And she has done a lot of work in that field. So uh, she is uh, uh, going to help us decipher some of these uh, issues. Uh, before I air the episode, I would love for you to uh, find the podcast anywhere. Of course, you know, if you're listening to this, it means you found it. But just remember, it is available also on YouTube channel. You can check out my website, shadinabhan.com. You can see all of the episodes there. Don't forget to let your friends and colleagues know about it. And if you have quick second, just write me a brief review. This allows more people finding this podcast and uh, finding it available for them. I'm pretty sure that there's some episode that's going to be appealing to somebody. And while at it, I have to plug in my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. You can find this book that was released in February 2023 anywhere you consume books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or through my publisher, Johns Hopkins University Press. 
Without further ado, it is really my pleasure to have this episode about the microbiome, myths and facts. So, Dr. Warger, since you're the newbie on Healthcare Unfiltered, I'd like to start with you and just a brief introduction about you. Yes, yeah, so my name is Jennifer Wargo. So I'm a professor of surgical oncology and genomic medicine at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Been there about 10 years before that. I was at Harvard where I began my studies on the microbiome, where we looked at the tumor microbiome in patients with pancreatic cancer. Uh, since being at MD Anderson, I've started to study the gut microbiome and shown that uh, gut microbes can actually help shape your immune system and can ha- help shape cancer immunotherapy response. And then I've had the great honor and pleasure of working with others worldwide to look at other ways of manipulating gut microbes to improve response to cancer treatment, including with Monty and with Nasli, and super excited to continue that work together. We're very happy to have you. The title of today's podcast, just so you know, the microbiome myths and facts, because sometimes I you see so many things happening on social media and would like to make sure that listeners are aware of the true things and what's happening in that field, investigations, and then what are the things that are probably too much hyped that are not really necessarily true. Uh, Nasli, Dr. Disman, I can say I've known Nasli before she was famous. You know what I mean? Like she's <laughs> she's on I her way she to fa- famous. No, but at some <laughs> point she wasn't that famous, right? I mean, so then I'm going to air the previous podcast when she was like one of us and before I have to like, Nasli, welcome to the show again. Well, you just wait. Give her a few years. She'll be uber famous, uh, much more know, famous than any I of know. us. Trust me. I know. Um, you are all too kind. Thanks for having me here. Uh, I'm Nasli Dizman. I am hematology oncology fellow at MD Anderson uh, since the last three weeks. Uh, prior to that, I was a resident at Yale. And prior to that, I was working with Dr. Marty Paul at City of Hope as his postdoc fellow. My research interest areas are around the connection between the microbiome and outcomes in renal cell carcinoma and strategies to modulate gut microbiome. Nazli, thank you for coming on the show. And Monty, one of the um, best mentors, honestly, I know in business. Uh, uh, So uh, welcome uh, back to the show. Maybe a little bit about you. Oh, sure. I am a medical oncologist at City of Hope in Los Angeles. I've been here, I gosh, for a long time now, 17 years at City of Hope. Um, but you know, working with Nasli has been one of the greatest privileges, I think, of my you know career there. We I'm so proud of her and I'm incredibly grateful to Dr. Wargo for taking Nasli under her wing at MD Anderson. I if it's okay, I'll just digress for one second and tell you a little story about Dr. Wargo, who I just I think the world of. On top of just being an amazing, accomplished scientist, this just shows you what a wonderful collaborative human being is. She invited me to join a panel. Um, I think it was at ESMO last year, um, and you know she she really did such a wonderful job of highlighting you know everyone else's work. And at the end of the session, gave me you know this beautiful little uh, plaque slash you know sort of uh, trinket that I have on my desk. Um, it, it was a globe, and you know she'd written a little personal note in there saying thank you for helping you know, change the world of the microbiome. And I, I consider myself to be very new to the field. So uh, I was just so touched by that, but it really speaks to her nature. So it's, you, you picked a great uh, array of folks for this podcast, Chadi, is what I meant to say. And I think 
Look, I think we all, for those of us who have had mentors that left an impact on us, we, you know, you go to the grave thinking of these mentors, honestly. Uh, and I always say that there are people who think they are mentors just by simply if they help you with one thing or two things. But the reality is that it takes true um, a person who's interested in you personally and professionally to really mentor you through a very difficult, I mean, the, the healthcare environment is not getting any easier, especially on the research side. But I want to start honestly with a very simple question. What in the world is the microbiome? Like what, what is like bacteria all over? So uh, we're going to take the formalities away. We're going to be by first name, all of us. So Jennifer, we'll start with you. Like what, what are we talking about? Yeah, that's, you know, interesting tidbit. I, I always say that, uh, you know, 3.5 billion years ago, microbes actually helped to shape the earth for future forms of life, right? They actually gave us oxygen that we breathe today. And now 3.5 billion years later, we know that, you know, not only is our environment filled with microbes, bacteria, viruses, fungi, you name it, but also our bodies are. And, you know, in a particular individual, there's around 20,000 human genes, which represents 1% of the total genomic content, but there's between 2 and 20 million microbial genes, which represents 99% of the total genomic content. And importantly, it's inherently modifiable. Now, um, here's, here's a piece of trivia for you, a cocktail party tidbit. So, you know, there are more microbial genes in the human body than there are stars in the galaxy, which is super cool, right? Really great, great fact. And it goes without saying that because there's so many of these that they can actually impact our physiology quite a bit. Sorry, my, I'm out with my kids. They're swimming here, so. <laughs> That's okay. That's healthcare, okay. Un, healthcare unfiltered. We just do it all, let me tell you. We don't filter Sounds anything. good. But yeah, so these, these microbes, a lot of them reside in our gut. They have a profound impact on our physiology. They help us digest the food that we eat and they also can actually help shape our immune system. You know, if you think about it all along that long elementary tract, on one side, you have these bugs and on the other side, you have these, you know, this dense, you know, infiltrating network of immune cells, this, you know, mucosal associated lymphoid tissue or malt. And so, you know, really there's this constant and dynamic interaction between the microbes in the gut and the uh, immune cells and really an education of the immune cells. But but so so Nasli, I mean, are we talking of the association of bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, and cancer? Is that what we're talking about? I mean, just I want to simplify it even further. Are we talking? Yeah, I mean, about... for, I think for the 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 sake of this podcast, yes, I think limiting it to cancer is very reasonable. You know, and saying that these microbes. So the microbiome refers to microbes and their genomes right within an area. And so, so, you know, within a human, you have your human microbiome and part of that is in the gut. Um, and so I think, yeah, for the, you know, really kind of to narrow the focus, I guess, focusing on the gut microbiome in cancer and cancer immunotherapy response is probably the easiest to tackle in a, in an hour or so. Yeah. But in essence, that's what we're, we, in an essence, it is the association of Bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, and disease. Yeah, yeah. and health for that matter. And I mean, they actually help keep us healthy, you know, when, when we have the right balance of these bugs. Nasli? 
I was going to say, when we say microbiome, it again includes all those like um, species, uh, but you could also call like more specific names for fungal microbiome, the fungal uh, species under the microbiome umbrella as microbiome, viral ones as virome, but in general, all those different microorganisms and um, all those different species, they would be called under the name of microbiome. So, so I mean, so Monty, what got you interested in this as a geomedical oncology? Did you just start thinking that maybe some GU oncology diseases may be associated with micro with microbiome, or it's it's actually a really bizarre story, um, and I don't know if I've really shared this with Jen before, but it was actually a biostatistician at City of Hope um, that got me interested in this. The biostatistician that I work with and I've been working with for over a decade. Um, has a lot of friends in the agriculture industry. And, you know, as you can imagine, in the agriculture industry, modulation of the microbiome is everything. You know, what you put into chicken feed and what you put into a sort of livestock feed really has a dramatic impact in terms of the longevity of the animals, you know, the extent to which they grow and develop and what have you. And of course, they've thought perhaps, you know, far ahead of us about the benefits of fortification of the microbiome. Um, so there's really sort of a rich science that's developed in the agriculture industry around this. He was motivated to sort of translate that into oncology. Um, so, you know, we we had this paper out in CCR, I think it was like in 2015 or something, eight years ago, um, small paper, just sort of proof of principle where we sequenced the gut in about 20 patients with kidney cancer. Um, and all these patients at the time had gotten sort of the standard treatment back then, which was just a TKI alone, a VEGF TKI. Um, and as we all know on this call, you know, VEGFTKIs cause, unfortunately, a ton of diarrhea. So we were sort of using the microbiome to tease apart which bugs might be associated with diarrhea, which ones weren't. Tiny study, but that was my first foray into it. And then, you know, I was really inspired by, you know, Jen's paper and the work of others that came out, uh, you know, right around that time, uh, really associating with checkpoint inhibitors, uh, certain bacterial species, the diversity of the microbiome, all of those elements sort of came together. And I just started thinking, gosh, it'd be wonderful to, you know, manipulate the microbiome um, as a means of sort of amplifying or augmenting the impact of checkpoint inhibitors. So, Jen, do you want to take us back as to... Um... You know, how, what's the history that you saw something between microbiome and checkpoint inhibitors? Was this specific to a disease or just a class of drugs? And how is that link was established? What, what, uh, what led to that? Yeah, so I actually started to study the microbiome when I was, uh, before I was at MD Anderson and when I was up at Mass General Hospital. And it was actually in the context of treating patients with pancreatic cancer. And uh, what we found is that we were actually trying to test, you know, what stromal factors might actually contribute to resistance to chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer. And we found that there was this one stromal cell line in our in vitro studies that was consistently able to confer resistance to treatment with chemo, you know, across multiple different pancreatic cancer, colorectal uh, cancer cell lines. And, you know, we, we, looked at different uh, enzymes, which we thought it would be like in human tissues and totally came up dry. And then on routine testing of the cell line in the laboratory, we found it was contaminated with mycoplasma, which at first was a bit devastating, but, but then we realized, well, wait a second, what if this mycoplasma is actually contributing to the therapeutic resistance? And we showed that if you treat the cells with antibiotics, kill the mycoplasma, 
you can actually, uh, you know, make the cancer cells sensitive again. If you infect another cell line, you can confer resistance and, and put it into a mouse model where we co-treated with antibiotics and chemo uh, and in the context of a colorectal cancer and cured all the mice of their cancer. And so then went back to human tissues and found that lo and behold, if we actually remove tumors of patients with pancreatic cancer and put them in an auger plate, you could actually grow bacteria out of those tumors. And, you know, and then we published those findings in science and I think it was 2017, you know, and, and I had been studying the tumor microbiome, moved down to MD Anderson and, you know, went to a meeting actually and, and saw the great work of Laurence at Vogel and Tom Gajewski, uh, where they had showed in mouse models, depending on what the bugs look like in the gut, dictated whether or not uh, those mice responded to cancer immunotherapy and furthermore showed that you could change the microbiome and make the mice respond better. And so it was... Uh, just a one of those wow moments at wow. you know a scientific meeting where I was like, this is amazing. I got up to the mic after the talk. I was like, this is incredible, you guys. You know, have you tested this in patients? And they hadn't, and so saw it as a unique opportunity to do that. And so, so uh, you know, ran back to MD Anderson, wrote a protocol to collect oral and gut microbiome samples in patients with melanoma who were going on to immunotherapy. In a year and a half, we collected samples from over 200 patients. Lo and behold, found that if patients had a more diverse gut microbiome, they did better. And if they had different bugs in their gut, they did better. A higher abundance of things like Fecalibacteria, Clostridialis, Ruminococcaceae. And so, and if they had a lower abundance of things like Bacteriales. And so we published those findings uh, back to back with Tom Gajewski, who had a paper on patients with melanoma, and Laurence Epigal had a uh, paper describing gut microbiome in patients with non-small cell lung cancer and kidney cancer. And so a trio of papers, uh, the trilogy, if you will, was published in 2018 in science, you know, and then it was really, uh, you know, very heartwarming to see a lot of scientists really, you know, notice that and say, wow, we need to study this more. And, you know, including Monty and Nasley and others. And, and now, gosh, it's like what they've done for the field far exceeds what we did, which is great. You know, it's always nice to see People well, but, who... uh, I, I think I think everybody recognizes uh, the the ones who started the field. Frankly, yeah, I mean, so you, you're being you know, you're being too you're being it, it does village. it does it does yeah. obviously it does but it, yeah. it clearly uh, you know uh, you started a wave and you need others to also help and and, yeah. and we're going to talk about that. Although I am curious, I want I want you all to comment when we get to it as the law naysayers about the microbiome and say like, you know, I don't know what you're doing and we're, we'll go over that. Nazli, was that the work that started you and Monty thinking about how you can correlate this with um, with the kidney cancer? That's the, the series of uh, papers published in 2018 that kind of made us think that we could implement those studies in our cohorts of kidney cancer patients receiving targeted therapies and immunotherapies with a two uh, separate protocol, back to back, at times simultaneous, um, looking at the characteristics of the gut microbiome and the outcomes with different therapeutics in patients with kidney cancer. And then that uh, these projects led to further projects trying to modulate the gut microbiome with live bacterial products. So, uh, Monty, was the choice of kidney cancer because you use IO? I mean, that's why you chose, uh, I'm going to study the microbiome in kidney cancer because I'm using immunotherapy? 
Um, you know, I, I think that it might have been more of a pragmatic choice because kidney cancer these days is pretty much all that I know. You know, like my clinic is, <laughs> you know, all about, you know, 85 to 90 percent kidney cancer these days. I, I still love seeing my prostate cancer patients and bladder cancer patients. But, you know, I, I will say that certainly, you know, I, I saw the, the relevance within that domain. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting. It's one of the things that I feel like happens less and less in this, you know, post-COVID era. I mentioned the interactions that I had with my biostatistician over the, you know, agriculture industry and, you know, his interests there. Uh, what really sort of drew me to the, the sort of therapeutic domain of the microbiome were interactions that I had with our chair of immunology, Peter Lee, um, who's very involved in um, the development and distribution of CBM588. Well, we can get into the details of that later, but it's a live bacterial product that Nasli and I have worked with over the past several years. Um, and we would just have these water cooler conversations saying, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we, you know, really sort of tested this particular agent in the context of immunotherapy? So, you know, I, I, I do see the water cooler conversations coming back a bit. And that's definitely one of the peripheral benefits is just really, you know, having those off the cuff conversations with colleagues and getting great ideas from just, you know, just kind of hanging around. Nasli, when you say I'm going to manipulate the microbiome, what does that even mean? How do you manipulate or modulate or the microbiome? Yeah, that's a great question. So as Dr. Vargo mentioned, several studies suggested um, certain uh, species that are associated with better response to immunotherapies. So we hope that um, some type of intervention could modulate the gut microbiome, meaning that uh, increase the abundances of those species associated with response, and perhaps that would impact a patient's um, benefit from the treatment. So that was our goal. That was also supported by the knowledge from, you know, two decades ago that the gut microbiome composition is impacted by one person's uh, location, their occupation, their diet, uh, the medications they use. So uh, the gut microbiome is very dynamic. So we hope that uh, an intervention that we picked would change the microbiome in a way that would support the immune system against cancer. So <clears throat> Jennifer, going back to some of the, I mean, right now when there's a patient with uh, cancer, I guess, I, I want to talk about healthy people as well, but I want to start with patients with cancer. Is the tradition right now, like if you're in the context of clinical trials, you collect stool specimens and everybody, blood specimen already, urine specimen, like are we, are, do we feel that there's, I mean, it seems like it's a lot um, because ultimately while you're doing research, you want this to become pragmatic enough that it, it translates into clinical practice. Uh, do, do you feel that eventually we are going to be in a scenario where stool is going to be sequenced uh, for cancer patients and and all other you know other things. Yeah, definitely. I, you know, I think we do it in the context of clinical trials. I think we we even do it on standard of care patients. Uh, but it it doesn't you know it costs something, right? But so do a lot of other tests that we do. You know, we look at genetic profiling. You know, we look at PDL one. You know, we look at tumor mutational burden. We look at next gen sequencing, and all of these tests have a cost, but they also um, have a benefit. I think the probably the hardest thing with the gut microbiome is a that not everyone likes to collect poop, right? <laughs> Patients and providers. 
And then B, that we don't know what a perfect microbiome really looks like, or at least historically ha we haven't. Now, I think we have a better sense, you know, a more diverse microbiome is better. Why is that? It's because there's functional redundancy of these bugs. And it's not necessarily the names of the bugs that matter, but their function. Um, and, you know, but for many years, you know, the, the signatures that we saw in patients uh, with different types of cancer who responded to immunotherapy treatment, you know, depending on where those studies were done and what type of cancer, it was different, right? And so you couldn't say, ah, there's the perfect microbiome, right? But I think now there have been larger cohorts of patients studied in aggregate, and they actually do find that there's some unifying signatures. So, you know, the, the short answer is yes. You know, will we be collecting and sequencing more poop samples from patients? Absolutely. You know, and I think um, now with advances in next generation sequencing, we can do that faster, better, and we can also have more clarity about what a good microbiome really is and then what to do with that information, right? Because that's the key. Yeah, I, I think, Monty, I, th I think I think the, the reason I asked the question is because while nobody wants to collect poop, but if you're going to get information that you can get elsewhere, uh, people will go through the trouble of it. I, a lot of the folks who are skeptical about microbiome research, they say, okay, it's good research, but it's not adding much. I can get the other information somewhere. And even if I'm getting information, it's not really altering what I'm doing, things of that nature. So as a scientist, when you approach this, you're looking at the pragmatic piece. You're trying to think, okay, how this is going to translate pragmatically? And B, how do you answer the question that this is really not giving you additional information beyond what you have already? I mean, yeah, you know, I, I think all, uh, all of us sort of grew up in this genomics age where, you know, we would actually, you know, the, the sort of experiment and dabble with these various platforms, you know, across disease types. And I, I really liken it to that. I think the way that we really figured out how to utilize uh, genomic data uh, for our patients, and, and I'm referring, of course, to DNA and RNA sequencing of the tumor, um, is just by doing it in sort of broad scope and large series across multiple histologies, and then really sort of linking and correlating that to, you know, various treatment outcomes. Um, and voila, now we have this age where, you know, in a lot of, uh, in a lot of fields, we're actually using precision oncology. I, I love, you know, Jen's approach of really, you know, trying to collect stool specimens on as many patients as possible, doing the sequencing. Um, I, I certainly concede that we're not there yet, but I have no doubt that we're going to get there when it comes to, you know, being able to link a certain stool bacteriomic profile, perhaps with, you know, benefit or lack thereof with therapy. Um, and I think moreover, I can really envision an age now where we have tailored therapeutics directed at the microbiome. And I, I think it holds that, you know, certainly the stool microbial profile would be a very logical, you know, predictor of benefit. I mean, all of this is hypothetical, but nonetheless, I think likely, you know, in, in the sort of time that we'll all be practicing as oncologists. Nasli, you've done some research on kidney cancer and you've, you've published some of this work with, with Monty and others, but can you, can you use this as an example? So at least listeners understand the type of research that you did. And I think there was a I, I'm forgetting, um, I, I forget, I forgot the title of the entire paper, but I, th I think you know the paper I'm talking about. Yes, that's a very long title. 
Um, so we uh, started a project with uh, Marty around 2017-2018, uh, enrolling patients with metastatic renal cell carcinoma prior to starting first-line treatment uh, with nivolumab and nivolumab. And we randomized patients into either receiving nivolipilone or receiving NivoEP with CBM588, which is a live bacterial product developed in Japan uh, in the 1960s and have been used in Japan very commonly, mainly in GI conditions um, for so many decades. Um, um, so in the study, we looked at several outcomes. The primary endpoint was um, the increase in the bifidobacterium species and the Secondary endpoints were the clinical outcomes, um, such as progression-free survival, response rate. Although, although you know um, the sample size was small, we had a total of thirty patients, and ten of them were randomized into nivolumab arm, and then twenty were randomized into nivolumab and CBM five eight eight arm. Um, we have seen some interesting findings. Um, the study didn't meet it. It's primary endpoint. Uh, so bifidobacterium didn't change from baseline to V12 in either arm. But when we looked at the patients who had benefit from treatment with CBM588 in addition to nivolumab, we saw an increase in bifidobacterium species, which may suggest that some patients actually benefit uh, from the additional live bacterial product on immunotherapy combination. And um, this patient has also achieved a gut microbiome modulation. In addition to that, I think the most interesting findings were in the clinical data. Although, again, it was a small data set, um, the progression free survival with Nivo EPCBM588 at the first analysis was like 12 months. Sorry, that's my dog. He thinks that I'm talking with him. Um, so, uh, in the uh, progression-free survival in the nivo arm was 2.6 months. That was a big difference. And response rate was 20% versus 58%. Um, so these were the findings that really attracted the, the attention of like several clinical and translational researchers and scientists. Um, we also have found supportive data looking showing increase in chemokines in patients who received CBM588. And, you know, several other findings in gut microbiome that may support the use of CBM588. Um, this study was later, this compound was later tested in a very similar design in patients who received nivolumab and cabozatinib. And this was recently presented at ASCO as an oral presentation. And the findings were uh, pretty much in line with what we found in the past. Jennifer, there are a lot of people who, this is, congratulations, this is, I mean, there's a lot of hypothesis generating in this. Obviously, it's not really changing anything today, but certainly setting the stage for a lot of things moving forward. It makes me wonder, there's a lot of research on diet and cancer. Is there a link there? Like, you know, the type of diet that leads to a particular microbiome, that leads to a particular, is that how the link is? And then what do you say to people who say that, um, Probiotics, if I take probiotics, this is something really good for prevention of cancer now in healthy people. Yeah, great questions. I think, you know, uh, so there's a couple different ways you can modulate gut microbes, right? You can give them, you can actually give a fecal transplant. And there were two back-to-back -back papers published in Science showing that if you give patients with metastatic melanoma who progressed on anti-PD-1, 
a fecal transplant from either a complete a patient who had a complete response or a partial response to treatment with immunotherapy, you can actually reverse immunotherapy resistance. Really spectacular studies. But again, fecal transplants are difficult, right? Um, and finding cancer patients. They, they, I'm not going to lie. They sound a little bit awful, fecal transplant. Yeah, it's not so bad, though. It's, I mean, when you're facing <laughs> a diagnosis, it's not so bad. You know what I'm saying? Um, yeah, but, I do. You know, I can tell you that, you know, we tried, we ran a study and we tried to get cancer patients to be donors and we really couldn't because they were all excluded, right? And so then just last week, there was a really beautiful paper published in Nature Medicine showing that in patients with melanoma, frontline therapy with fecal transplant from a healthy donor is actually safe and effective. You know, it was a single arm study, so hard to really compare it. But nonetheless, you can even use a healthy donor. Now, now the important thing, though, you know, and, and so for the longest time, we're like, okay, we should just use fecal transplants, which is a stepping stone. You know, it's not the end game. And, you know, until, uh, you know, we saw Monty and Nasley's work, we were thinking, well, gosh, it's just going to have to be FMT for now. But wow, to see, you know, a live bacterial product like CBM 588, you know, essentially a probiotic Uh be effective in treating cancer alongside treatment with immunotherapy was just spectacular. Now, how about diet? And so this ties back to um, really to the function of these microbes. It's not just their names, it's what they're doing. But anyway, uh, it's all about function, right? And you can change the function of microbes, you know, a couple of ways. One is by diet. So it's not just, you know, who those bugs are, it's what you're feeding them that matters, seed and soil, right? And so we showed in a publication in 2021 oh. that uh, if, if patients eat a high fiber diet, they're much more likely to respond to treatment, okay? And so for every five gram increase in fiber in their diet uh, per day, they actually had a 30% reduction in their risk of recurrence, really dramatic, wow. right? Wow. And so we took that back to a mouse model, uh, gave mice a low fiber diet, they failed to respond to treatment, and they failed to activate T cell signaling. And then we have, uh, now we're running dietary intervention studies with Jen McQuaid and Carrie Daniel, where we actually take uh, patients with, with melanoma and other cancers and give them high fiber diet. Yeah, that is, I mean, that to, to me it's fascinating because, um, you know, I think everybody, you know, help, help, I mean, there are two issues from a, patients with cancer and Monty, maybe you reflect on that. Patients with cancer, uh, you know, while it is difficult with dietary manipulation, but they will always prefer that over chemotherapy. Let's be, let's be honest here. And then for healthy people, if you tell them, if you take probiotics uh, once or twice a day, and if you do a couple of things, you reduce your risk of developing cancer, it will be a very welcome way of doing things. So I guess my question to you now with your observation with Nosley's paper and with what Jennifer said, how are you taking that? And what are the type of uh, next uh, generation studies that you're thinking about in that particular area? Oh, can I add one more thing though, before we leave the, the diet, you know, yeah, in that please. paper, you know, we actually showed that um, if patients reported taking uh, commercially available probiotics, that they actually numerically did worse. Um, and this was, you know, kind of common oh, probiotics really? in the U.S. Yeah, not CBM 588, not Japanese probiotics, but American 
probiotics, you know? And uh, then we took it back to a mouse model and actually gave mice, germ-free mice, a perfect microbiome from a complete responder donor, and then treated them with either sterile water as a control versus one of two probiotics we bought off the shelf, either Culturel or Align, Bifido or uh, Lactobacillus, right? And if then we implanted tumors and treated with checkpoint blockade. And if we, what we found is that if mice received either of the commercially available probiotics, these two, you know, either Bifido or Lactobacillus, that they actually did worse and they had worse immune systems. So not all probiotics are good. You know, so Very I guess interesting. they all want to know what they can do to stack the deck in their favor, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so Monty, uh, as a researcher, you're designing a lot of trials, obviously you're focusing on the GU world a little bit. Are you starting to add a lot of this as secondary endpoints? Are you trying to add a component in some of the interventional studies, collecting stool, adding some other interventions? How are you taking all of this and applying it to the kidney cancer world, which you live in day in and day out? So I assume you're referring specifically to diet, probiotic intake, and so forth. You know, diet and, and probiotics and microbiome and things like that. Certainly, things we're trying to capture. I don't think anybody's doing it better though than than Jen's group. But if you don't mind, I'll turn it back to you, Jen, because I, I I think that it would be wonderful to hear a little bit more about the the prospective fiber diet study you guys are doing. I just think it's so cool. Um, Let's hear it, Jen. Yeah. Yeah, so we have these uh, dietary intervention studies where we'll give patients up to 50 grams per day of fiber. Now, it's not fiber you can buy in a pill. It's actually whole food-based fiber, you know, with fruits and grains and veggies and, uh, you know, and uh, we actually have a chef, you know, chefs that we've hired and we have a bio-nutrition research core, essentially a food kitchen. We actually package meals, kind of like Blue Apron, and ship them anywhere in the country, Right. And we've, you know, we've started these dietary intervention studies. You know, the diets are very tolerable. We can get patients up to 50 grams per day, which is really important. And uh, we're seeing some encouraging responses, though. You know, results are growing. Uh, are you doing this for, I, I may have missed it, in melanoma specifically or in other Now cancers? we're doing in multiple cancer types, you know, so, so okay. uh, all different cancer types. And now this is data that, you know, like these are guidelines you can give patients to, right? You know, like having adequate dietary fiber of at least 20 grams per day is good advice to give to patients, right? And and something that, you know, we don't necessarily, you know, need to package, nor can we package meals for every single patient, you know, and ship them anywhere in the world. I think we can, we can do education um, efforts and really enable sure. patients, you know, to, to eat the right things. So, so Monty, I want to go back to you because I I think uh, these dietary interventions are great. How do you, I guess the question is from a scientific standpoint, how do you know that this is directly contributing? Because there's so many other things happening, the confounding factors that may be leading to the outcome that you are measuring. Um, sometimes could be the additional therapy that you are giving to the cancer patient and uh, patients get different treatments. Uh, could be the host microenvironment in particular cancers. I guess my, my question is, how much can we tell that the particular dietary intervention is indeed making the difference versus it is associated to the outcome and there are, it's part of the confounding factors that we may be dealing with? Yeah, I I, I think that, you know, it's, it's so critical that we just, you know, 
kind of maybe trust randomization in these cases? You know, I know it's hard to do, right? You know, I've, the studies we're doing, you know, at this point in time aren't definitive. We've got to get there. Um, but, you know, I think if we look at the data and, and the context of the randomization, you know, at least we can see whether or not there's a signal there to move forward with. Um, you know, that's why I, I love, you know, sort of what Jen's group is doing with the dietary. I, I believe there's a randomized component to that, if I remember correctly, yeah, which is... Like, I, I may have missed that. Yeah, yeah. I, I see. Yes, I may have missed that. them to an isocaloric uh, diet that's not high fiber. You know what I mean? So either same number of calories, high fiber versus, you know, around 15 to 20 grams per day. Jen, yeah. is, there, is there a specific cancer in your mind that you think is more prone to the um, microbiome manipulation? Um, or obviously, you've done a lot of work in, in melanoma and, and other cancers, but is there, I mean, do you think colorectal cancer, just because it's the colon and small bowel and, and these like this would be more prone to manipulation? Or it really doesn't matter because melanoma has nothing to do with the, I mean, I don't know. I'm asking an immature question, but I promise you it's a question that's coming through the mind of my listeners. I love this question. And, you know, it's a great question. So they actually, there was a paper published out of Memorial Sloan Kettering, right? In Nature Medicine that showed in CAR-T therapy, so chimeric antigen receptors, right? Treating liquid tumors. That if patients got antibiotics and wiped out their gut microbiome, that they actually didn't respond and they had higher toxicity, right? And, uh, now they are actually giving things like fecal transplants, you know, to patients who have liquid tumors who are getting stem cell transplant or CAR T, you know, to really kind of make their microbiome better. And if you think about it, like in a lot of these solid tumors, you know, what do patients see before they see immunotherapy chemo? And, you know, what does chemo do to your microbiome? And, and it can be quite, you know, quite rough on the gut microbiome. So, yeah. you know, Melanoma, it's, it's a little easier to study just because we can give frontline immunotherapy, uh, but I still think the microbiome has relevance in every cancer, the gut microbiome in yeah. particular. Yeah. So, Nasli or Monty, or both of you, I mean, what are the, um, put yourself in the position of a reviewer who is reviewing a paper talking about microbiome, what would you say the shortcomings of microbiome research, what are the issues that that you hear around you of folks who might be skeptical, I guess. Um, uh, and I believe sometimes skepticism actually helps because it leads to more research and more definitive uh, conclusions. But at least, you know, the skeptics about this type of research, what are they skeptical about? What are the things you hear them saying and how do we respond to them? Nazli, maybe I'll start with you and then Monty can comment on that. Yeah, I can go. Um, so I think there are several um, of them. I think earlier in the like mid um, twenty teens, um, so the sample sizes were similar. I think that was uh, perhaps a um, limitation that was cited a lot. And at that time, and up until now, causality is a uh, another. Um, um, another component of limitations that mentioned in many studies, it's 
uh, in line with what you mentioned, uh, is that they were going to respond, then uh, their microbiome changed or their microbiome changed and because th then they responded. Um, but nowadays, like most of the um, researchers like us, like try to work with uh, lab-based scientists, like try to replicate the findings and um, laboratory animals to kind of observe uh, there, there is causality actually, as we speculated. Um, um, aside from that, I think for years, the microbiome analysis have evolved. Now we are going beyond uh, just calculating the number of the or percentage of the specific species. Now that we're doing um, we are doing more transcriptomics. We are looking at the functional gut microbiome and combining all those like different data points. Monty, you're um, you're wearing your swag uh, shirt, so I have to yeah. ask you a question because that's actually important. I mean, I would think, I would think that the cooperative groups would be so well positioned to answer a lot of questions if you guys are collecting stool specimens, frankly. Uh, because you run these large studies that that change standard of care in certain scenarios. And I could imagine a situation where you can go back to some of the prospective studies and analyze the specimens and see if you can get some information. Are you doing that right now? Is this in the future? Uh, I mean, are we at a stage where part of any cooperative groups, you may not sequence right away because there's funding issues, but are you saying collect the specimens and store them and see what we do with them later on? So, you know, I'll tell you that it's not quite yet within the GU group, although we have some discussions underway. But, you know, in our last SWOG meeting in April, we had some terrific talks from uh, the group focused on checkpoint inhibitor toxicity led by Nicole Hooterer. Um, and they have a project ongoing right now within SWOG called iCheckIt, a brilliant name to really sort of capture prospectively IO related toxicity. And within that study, I believe they're already actually doing stool collections. Um, so, you know, that that was a really sort of interesting insight into what's happening at that cooperative group level. Uh, within the GU space, you know, we're having some discussions around moving CBM forward into a trial that really builds nicely on Nosley's design. Um, it's at very early stages of concept discussion. I feel pretty comfortable sharing it, though. Pedro Barada, who's at Case Western, brilliant young GU investigator, is actually leading the charge with that trial. Um, so I'm hoping that, you know, SWOG and other cooperative groups will play a very active role in further examining these compounds. I'd like to finish by each one maybe saying concluding statement. I, I can tell you, I, I'm very excited watching the field. I'm obviously not actively involved in this, but I'm really very, uh, like, I feel there's something there. I believe we, you know, at some point, you all are going to find something uh, my concern is not the science, to be honest. My concern is more the pragmatic thing. You know, are we able to translate the science eventually into practicality of uh, of what people do? Like Jen said, nobody likes to collect poop, not the patient nor the physician. <laughs> so uh, maybe concluding remarks, we'll start with Jen. Yeah, I think, you know, and I think there was some hesitation early on to collect these samples. I think people are excited about it now. You know, I, even... In venues where I'm meeting people out, we talk about the microbiome. People want their poop se sequence now. So I think uh, there's a lot less reluctance and, you know, knowledge is power. And, you know, you can do 23andMe and for, with your blood and you can do 23andMe for your poop, right? You know, and so who wouldn't want to know, especially since it's actionable, right? You can 
if you know what's there, you know how you can optimally change it, right? You know, so I think I think with regard to profiling the microbiome, it's going to become more frequent. You know, will we have better ways of doing it, you know, that are more user-friendly? They have these smart toilets that they're developing, believe it or not, where you can sit down and it'll sample your microbiome and then send back information to your smartphone. So, you know, someday could we actually have a smart toilet that kind of tells us what our gut health is like? I think that day is in the future. I think uh, also they have these 3D printed pills that you can swallow that'll sample your gut microbiome along the length. And then they have these breathalyzers that measure volatile organic compounds, which are kind of the output of the gut microbiome. And so could that be a way to profile? You know, and then I think from an intervention standpoint, it's moved so rapidly already. I mean, you know, the first studies were done in mice published in 2015. The first human cohort studies 2018. And then the, uh, you know, the first human intervention studies 2021 with FMC. And then, wow, CBM 588, you know, now the sky's the limit, right? And so now there's a lot of groups trying different ways to change the gut microbes, right? Through either live bacterial uh, products, through FMT, through dietary intervention. We're actually looking at targeted antibiotic approaches that selectively deplete bad bugs and let the good bugs grow, you know? And CRISPR, you know, can you actually engineer either someone's inherent microbiome or a new microbiome? We've created these synthetic communities of microbes that could actually be given to patients or to help the individuals to optimize their microbiome. So I think the future's bright, you know, it's going to be a very pillar of not only cancer care, but overall precision health. Ultimately, uh, we just need to to just accept it and adopt it. That's amazing, Jen. Thank you. You know, I, I wrote a book on uh, glyphosate and non-Hodgkin lymphoma and Roundup. So I have a lot of interest in the impact of pesticides on 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 gut, but I don't want to digress about that. So it's um, it's uh, I had I was an expert witness against Monsanto in the first three trials. Um, Nasli, your final comments. It's always so hard to speak after Dr. Bargo being after being that much inspired at that. So maybe I'll take my um, few minutes to thank our patients. I echo what Dr. Bargo said so far. We collected uh, over almost 150 samples, um, of which 60 were from interventional studies. And our patients really dedicated their time. They collected their diet every day. They brought their stool sample at the beginning, like true FedEx in huge boxes. Now it's like pretty small and very convenient. But, you know, they really helped us kind of just uh, improve ourselves along the way. And um, I really appreciate their uh, participation and their, their help to us to help understand, you know, the impact of gut microbiome and how we can modulate that. Thank you. Monty, last comments? Yeah, oh, tough to go after these two, but what, what I'll tell you is that, um, you know, I feel like so much of what we do on oncology, right, is dictated by, you know, uh, biotech. And, you know, I think that there may be some initial stumbles that cast some doubt on the field. You, know, you think about, you know, Saris Therapeutics, you think about 4D Pharma and so forth. But, you know, th those are just two, you know, sort of singular approaches towards modulating the microbiome. You know, you've heard from Jen about all the amazing things that they're doing to manipulate the microbiome at MD Anderson. As I look around the globe, you know, there's so many diverse approaches, you know, beyond CBM, beyond FMT, 
which by the way, comes in many different flavors. You know, I would tell you that there's other approaches, building consortia of bacteria and administering those to patients as opposed to singular strains, which is what, you know, we've sort of done to date. Tons of exciting approaches that are coming coming in the future. And I definitely think that uh, I'll echo something I said earlier, hopefully within the time that we're in practice, we're going to see some of this really become a standard of care. Um, I, I definitely think with Bright Minds, like, you know, Jen and Osley and others, we're, we're definitely destined to, to do that. Well, I'm can very I, grateful. Yeah. Can I add one more thing? Antibiotic Please. stewardship, I think is really important. You know, so they have actually shown, David Panato and others, Bertrand Rowdy, have shown that if patients get broad spectrum antibiotics before they get treated with immunotherapy, they fail to respond, right? And so, you know, this, we really need to be careful about who we give these broad spectrum antibiotics to. And so, and does it have an impact on overall health? You know, I think that's something else, like you said, pesticides, quality of drinking water, broad use of antibiotics. Is this contributing to the development of cancer in younger individuals? You know, I think these are important questions that we need to study. I couldn't be more thankful, Dr. Bargo, Dismon, and Pal. Thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. I definitely need to have you again next year. Uh, there's really, um, this is, I view this, this is an educational opportunity to a lot of folks. So, you know, with several thousand people listening to this podcast every week, I think hopefully your voice will reach folks who probably don't know about this research from patients, families, and, and students, and fellows, and others. So I couldn't be more thankful. Thank you so much for coming on. Folks, thank you so much for listening. And thank you to my amazing panelists for educating us and for really having a fun episode about science, about probably what the future holds in the area of microbiome and cancer and the type of research that is ongoing. I hope you found this episode useful. I hope you found it educational. And don't forget to let me know what you think by direct messaging me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or email chadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Don't forget to check out my website, chadinabhan.com, as well as check out my book, Toxic Exposure, The True Story Behind the Monsanto Trials and the Search for Justice. You can watch, by the way, all of the podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. And also check out my Instagram account, Chadi underscore Healthcare Unfiltered. Before I let you go, I would like to leave you with a quote from our old buddy, Albert Einstein. He once said, the most important thing is to never stop questioning. Until next time, take care.